morning. Well, in the year 640 BC, the nation of Judah gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the coronation of their new king. This would have been a great moment in the history of Judah, except for two very awkward facts. The nation was a political and spiritual wasteland. Second, they were crowning an eight-year-old boy, Josiah, to fix all of their problems. I want you to imagine for a moment the weight of the crown on the head of this eight-year-old kid. The nation had to deal with significant external issues. Once again, they're caught in the crosshairs of two world powers. Babylon's gaining strength from the north. They're crunching down, and Egypt is gaining strength from the south, and they're just caught in this awkward piece of land in the middle, and it's closing in. The, the, The world power situation's heating up, but the nation had significant internal heals, uh, wounds to heal from as well. See, Josiah's father, Amon, had just been assassinated. This eight-year-old kid, his dad just got assassinated. He was an unpopular leader. His approval rating sunk, and they, they killed him and put his eight-year-old son on the throne instead. But if you can believe it, Josiah had bigger issues to overcome than the death and assassination of his father. Two years earlier, Josiah's grandfather had, had died. His name was Manasseh. And the nation of Judah was still living in the dark shadow of this man's 55-year reign. It's very difficult to overstate Manasseh's corruption. If you read through the historical narratives, Manasseh is the reason for the exile. His evil was so pronounced, God was done with the nation. They had to get out. Now, basically how Manasseh maneuvered this is he he made an agreement with Assyria. He basically sold the nation over to Assyria and got a lot of financial return as a result. So the city on the ground looked really good. They were able to build the walls. They revitalized downtown. Everything was looking great in Jerusalem. People were happy. But spiritually, it was a death blow. They opened up the door to a world of evils that God never wanted in that nation. They sold themselves. And so instead of worship of Yahweh alone, all of a sudden, Baal worship started popping up in Asherah. All, all across the, the, the nation. And instead of praying to Yahweh, they would now pray, or they would go to necromancers and mediums, strictly prohibited. Instead of going to the temple to worship the one true God, they would go to the temple and find an altar to the sun. They put an altar to the sun in the temple. Cultic prostitution in the temple. And if you went on one dreadful day, you would find Manasseh sacrificing this child, strictly prohibited, strictly prohibited in the Torah. And you may wonder, how did he get away with it? Well, he just muted the Bible. He just did away with the Bible. Whether he destroyed the copies, most likely, or whether he just neglected it and did his own thing instead, we're, we're not quite sure. But we do know that for decades, the word of God drifted out of the consciousness of God's chosen people. I want you to imagine, if you will, the, the darkness of that. This is the world of Josiah. I want you to try to Imagine the world of Josiah, a world without the word of God. So you have to take away all your Bibles, all eight translations that you have on your shelves at home. Delete all the Bible apps from your iPhones and iPads. Take away the Bible software from your computer and take away your kids' storybook Bibles and close down all the Bible training institutes and go ahead and darken the Bible verses on the cup of your favorite fast food restaurant. We come here to, we're studying 1 Timothy and God's instructions for the church. We'll have to do away with that too. And so instead, let's just read a few leadership books and put our heads together and come up with a few cute and clever ways to lead the church. That's Josiah's world. That's the world that he began to reign. It was spiritually dark, and from what we can gather, he'd had no clue 
that a written copy of God's word had ever existed. This is darkness. This is not good for the people of God. When he was 26, he begins a routine renovation project at the temple. And wouldn't you know it, the high priest that year, Hilkiah, discovers a book of the law. God had preserved his word, and the priest finds it, dusts it off, can't believe what he has found, rushes it to the king, and for the first time in decades, the word of God is read in, in, the, in the presence of the king. And Josiah's response is amazing. He rips his clothes. His heart was cut. And he begins a reformation campaign that's unrivaled in the history of Judah. He completely just sweeps through and undoes everything that his grandfather had done. Listen to how the narrator of 2 Kings describes Josiah in light of his response to the word of God. I have it on the screen in 2 Kings 23. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and all the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might according to all the law of Moses. Nor did anyone like him arise after him. When Josiah heard the word of God, he responded. He was cut to the heart and he acted on it. And because of this immediate and wholehearted response to the Bible, 2 Kings tells us that his greatness was unparalleled. There was nobody like him. There was no king ever like him. You remember King David? Not even close to Josiah. Apparently, listening, responding to the Bible is that important. Do I need to remind you that David wrote part of the Bible? He wrote many of the Psalms that we have. And yet Josiah transcends him in greatness because he responded to the word of God. So apparently from this text, responding to the word is more important than having a part of writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. That's astounding. When is the last time that you read the Bible and you responded to God's word like that? When's the last time it cut you to the heart and moved you to bold action? Do you read the Bible like that? Do you respond to God's word like that? You see, in many ways, our world is a lot different than Manasseh's kingdom. We've not been starved of the word of God. We've been stuffed with it. It's everywhere. Everywhere you turn, every state, there's just the word of God everywhere. And this is a good thing unless we ignore it or worse, assume it. We just assume the word of God and it's just kind of in the background and it never moves our soul and it never moves us. I can't think of a more depressing condition than to be in a world that has richly received God's word and that ignores it and just brushes it aside. My prayer for this church and for us is that we would hear the word of God and respond like Josiah. This morning we're going to look at a text that I think is designed to light that fire. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 119. Psalm 119. It's not very hard to find. It's right in the middle of the Bible and it takes up several pages. So there's a good chance you'll find it as you skim through there. Uh, you're probably aware this is the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, to put it in perspective, it contains 176 verses. First Timothy has 113. This is a massive chapter of the Bible. It's, it's huge. It's bigger than many books. But don't be intimidated by its length. Psalm 119 is a joyful, almost playful celebration of God's word. Every verse in the entire psalm, 176 verses, every one of them but three, 
just rejoice in God's word. They delight in God's word. They're, they're grateful to God for his word. Now, he'll use words like precepts and testimonies and commandments and law and statutes, and they're all slightly nuanced, but the, the, the point remains, he is thankful that God has spoken, and he's going to write a very long poem to tell you why. So for such a joyful and celebratory psalm, I'll go ahead and say it, because I know some of you are thinking it, how is it so boring? <laughs> this is the part where you get to in your devotions that just, it takes you like eight days to get through it. It's very scattered. It's very hard to read. It's long, and it's repetitive, and usually about verse 50, I find my attention span really has to kick into a higher gear to stay with it. It's, it's hard to, to make it through all 176 verses. Let me say two things to that. Um, first, the repetition's purposeful. It's meant to be repetitive. It's a mnemonic device that's designed to be memorized that would instill a deep love and loyalty to God's word. If you have 176 verses in your head exalting God's word, you're going to approach the Bible differently. And that's the point. It's supposed to be repetitive. But it's not a dull repetition. It's not like an ice cream truck. You know, just... Oh. It's not like that. It's like more like the score of, the, of your favorite movie. It kind of kicks in at every moment, whether it's happy or sad. It's kind of got this nice little refrain. And after the movie's over, you just keep singing that in your head. It's just this beautiful repetition. Think of it in that way. It's a good thing. Repetition's a good thing. And second, let me suggest that some of it was probably lost in translation. You see, if you, if you look at it, it's going to be clumped up into eight um, Eight stanzas, or 22 stanzas, and each stanza is going to have eight verses. And each stanza is going to be sponsored by a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic. It's going to go through successively the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. And so the first one, every, every word in Hebrew is going to begin with Aleph. The second stanza, every word is going to begin with Beth. You don't see that in English. It's hard to get the real, it's hard to translate that, but if you were to look at this in Hebrew, it would just pop off the page. It wouldn't be long and redundant. It would almost be exciting as you progress through the alphabet. But we lose a little bit of that. Even still, these difficulties are minor, and if, if you invest the time and energy into this psalm, you'll be richly rewarded. I know it. And it'll change your heart for God's word. And so with that, let's get into the text. Don't worry, I'll stop at verse 16. So <laughs> I know you were kind of worried. You're like, is he gonna read the whole thing? So we're going to just look at the first two stanzas. So let's uh, take a look at Aleph and Beth. First, Aleph. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways be steadfast in keeping your statutes then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Beth, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. This is the word of God. I'm going to stop here though. We can continue for the next 20 stanzas and be deeply edified as a church. 
But we'll pause here so we can consider in detail the first two stanzas. These are rich, rich verses. Now, it's a difficult text. You probably already realize this. It's difficult to outline because there's really no linear argument. One commentary said that it's um, a chest of gold rings, not a, a link, a chain of gold links. It's a chest of gold rings, not a chain of gold links. He's really not trying to convince us of anything or take us on a logical train ride. There's a lot of places in the Bible that do, and it's easy to outline and progress through a series of thoughts. This psalm is not like that. He's just fascinated and in love with the Bible, and he's going to give you a lot of reasons why. Okay, and so it's difficult to outline, but for those of you, for me, who need an outline, this is how we're going to progress through the text this morning. I've given it my best shot. Don't make too much of it, but this is how we're going to go through it. Verses 1 to 3, we're going to discuss the blessings of blamelessness, the blessing of blamelessness. Verses 5 to 8, at the end of the first stanza, we're going to talk about grace for the weary. At the beginning of the second stanza, we're, we're going to look at the first three verses and discuss the pursuit of purity. And we'll close with just the psalm is basking in the joy of God's word. So this is our outline. Let's begin. We're going to start with the blessing of blamelessness. Verses 1 to 3. You're going to notice that the first three verses are different than the rest of the text. All right, let's read them again. See if you can notice a few differences. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Now, if you read through the next 173 verses, you're going to notice a very personal and intimate dialogue. I desire your word. My soul clings to the dust. Save me according to your word. It's going to be this personal, interpersonal play with the psalmist and God. They're going to have a conversation about God's word. But the first three verses don't act like that. They're more objective. They're more proverbial. These could belong in the Proverbs, couldn't they? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to Yahweh's law, right? They're a little bit more objective. Now, if the rest of Psalm 119 is going to be his journal and personal reflections of the Bible, Psalm, the, the first three verses are going to be on the cover. They're going to guide his reflections throughout the rest of the chapter. So they're very important, clearly very important, and they're going to establish a basic and profound truth. There's two ways to live. According to these three verses, there are two ways to live. You can live... In light of God's word, you can live whatever life you want to in accordance with your own word. You can live in accordance with God's word or you can live in accordance with your word. Which will you listen to and which will you obey? God's word or your word? And I already know the answer to the question. Which will you obey? Since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, we all obey our own way. This is the, the, the ethic that we live by. It's the exact opposite of Psalm 119. Blessed are those who make their own rules and follow their own advice. Blessed are those who passionately do what they want to and get away with whatever they want to. This is the, the guiding principle of our world. Blessed are you when you do what you want to do. Do it your way. And this is a miserable way to live, isn't it? Because when everybody's living according to your own way, it's very tiring. Because what happens when somebody contradicts your way? You have to get angry, and you have to snap, and you have to protect, and you have to build up. And it's very miserable, and that's how we all live. But Psalm 119, 1 through 3, give us the blessing of blamelessness. It gives us a peek of what it was like before the fall. Adam and Eve naked, blameless before God, shameless. It's life before the fall, and astoundingly, 
This life is possible. These promises are possible after the fall. We can read these and, and, and receive these, the blessing of blamelessness now. Right? Even though we sinned and walked away and followed our own path, God has made a way for us to return to him. This is hope. This is the candle that's burning. We have hope. God has made a way. The psalmist received that blessing by having faith in the hope of God's promises, and we receive that blessing by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, living your own way, doing whatever you wanted to do, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Listen, when we hear the gospel and respond, we'll be blameless. And that is blessed. That's a blessed life. Let me say one more thing about the, the word blessed and we'll move on. But um, the Hebrew word that opens the psalm, blessed, in the first two verses, blessed, is a Hebrew word, ashray. This is an abundantly happy word. It's very light. It's very happy and joyful. I don't know about you, but sometimes the word blessed is kind of heavy. It gets a little clogged up in the English. When I think of blessing, I think of Jacob and his sons. Blessings, my child. You know, it's kind of reverent. It's kind of solemn. And it's, so when we hear blessed are those who live according to the God, God's word, it's kind of that, just that deep and reverent blessing. There actually is a word for that in the Hebrew language. If you glance over, look at verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. That's a different word. It starts with B. <laughs> That's a different word that has a different idea. It's reverent. It's solemn. It's kind of ceremonial. Ashray, the one that starts off, the, the, sets the poetic tone of the rest of the psalm is not heavy. It's light. The actual translation should be happy. It could be blessed. Blessed is a good word, but it's really trying to communicate the idea of happiness. And I know a lot of Christians have boycotted that word because it's a little too light and fluffy, right? We like joy, right? We like to sing that last song that we just, did you notice that? Rejoice in a minor key, right? It's kind of got that heaviness to it, you know? And it's just like, that's a good Christian joy, you know? Don't be scared of happy. Don't be scared of happy. Don't you think God is happy? Don't you think Adam and Eve were happy? To be blameless and to be blessed is a happy life. When you hear the gospel and you respond to the gospel and your heart begins that transformation of coming more and more like the heart of God, you'll be blessed and you'll be happy. God's heart is unrestrained and never-ending happiness. And when we become more and more like God in accordance to his word, we too will be blessed and that's happy. So that sets the tone. This is a good, this is a good song. It's happy. Let's move on. Verse two, uh, or the part, part two, grace for the weary, verses four to eight. Now after this lofty introduction, the psalmist is gonna dive into his personal thoughts about the word. And he says, you've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Very high standard. Lord, I know you've commanded your, your law to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. The bar set so high, and he realizes he's not there. I think one of the things that turns people off to Psalm 119, and really the Old Testament, is just this constant talk of law. Just the law, the commandments, and maybe you're just like, where's the grace? Where's the grace? 
It's everywhere. From beginning to end, the grace of God pervades the Bible. Acts 20, 32 says it's the word of God's grace. Every bit of its grace. Where's the grace in Psalm 119? The celebration of God's law. God, you have commanded your statutes to be kept diligently. Help me. Oh, that my ways be that, because I'm not, I'm clearly not. He realizes that his only hope is in God's word, and he realizes that he so quickly wanders away. Listen to the end of this stanza, verse 8. I will keep your statutes. It's just adamant resolution. I'm going to keep them. Don't utterly forsake me. You just sense that uncertainty in that. I just don't, I can't do it. The whole psalm, the whole psalm ends, this is a very important verse, the ending of the entire psalm ends like this, verse 176. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. You ever feel like that? Like a lost sheep that you know the truth and you know what's right and you know you want to be part of the fold and you've gone away like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Listen, be encouraged that these confessions are included in this lofty and grand celebration of God's word. He gets very personal and he realizes that he can't do it, but listen, he doesn't hide. He doesn't pretend like everything's okay. He has the courage to say, God, help me. If you are a lost sheep and you have wandered and you know you're, you're drifting away, don't hide, don't keep going. Have the courage to pray this prayer, God, don't utterly forsake me. I'm a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Oh, that my ways be steadfast. Then I would look upon your commands and I would not be put to shame. Have the courage to pray that. Don't forsake me, God. And you know what? I think God loves to hear that prayer. Don't forsake me. He loves to hear it and he loves to answer it even though you and I deserve forsakenness. We deserve to be forsaken. We pray that. Don't forsake me, God. It's, you know, God has every right to say, are you kidding me? You rebelled. I'm going to forsake you. You know why he doesn't forsake us? It's because Christ took our sins and he, he was forsaken. And so when we ask God, don't forsake us, utterly forsake us, the answer is okay. There's grace for the weary through Jesus Christ. Let's move to the second stanza. Beth. The pursuit of purity, verses 9 through 11. Now, I mentioned earlier that it's difficult to clump some of these into larger segments, but occasionally it, it comes around. Verses 9 through 11, I think, are bound by a desire for purity. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, he wants a sinless life, and he realizes that the only way he can do this is to live in accordance with God's word. It might help to see this as a concentric circle. I've, kind of, I've given another slide, so maybe you can visualize it a little bit. The first part of verse 9, if you want to go to the next one, there you go. The first part of verse 9, a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? The last part of 11, how can I not sin against you? That's the goal. If you go one step in on each verse, the end, end of verse 9, he's going to give strategy by guarding it according to your word. And then the first part of verse 11, that I, I've stored up your word in my heart. So by guarding it, by storing it up, and then verse 10 in the middle stands as a prayer. Help me. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Don't let me wander. So we've got the goal. I want to stay pure. The strategy. We guard it according to God's word. We store it up in our heart. And then the prayer. Help me, God. 
That's how you stay pure. Let's, let's take nine, verse nine in isolation. How can a young man keep his way pure? This verse is typically applied to high school, college guys that are struggling with sexual purity. That's kind of where we typically go to, but the application is much broader. He most likely wrote, how does a young man keep his way pure? Because he was young and he was a man. It's biographical, autobiographical. How does a young man keep his way pure? And purity, obviously, it includes sexual purity, but it basically speaks of how do I stay on the track? How do I stay wholehearted? Okay, so if you're not young and if you're not a man, this verse still applies to you, all right? It applies to everybody. How can we keep our hearts pure? By guarding it according to your word. Now, if you're around Watauga County much, you're gonna hear a lot of complaints. The roads are curvy. They're like really narrow. How do you expect a car to get through there, right? And no matter where you drive in, in Boone, you just always end up at Wendy's. You're like, oh, I'm at Wendy's again, and I'm at a red light. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of weird stuff about Watauga County roads. But one complaint I have never heard and never expect to hear is, you know what? We have way too many guardrails. They're just these cliffs, and I just want, I just want to know what's down there, right? I just, it's too many guardrails. In fact, I think everybody in this room wants more guardrails. We More guardrails in Watauga County. Why is that? Because guardrails do not inhibit your freedom. Guardrails inhibit your death and destruction. Guardrails are good things when you're driving on a curvy, icy road. Why do we treat biblical ethics as the enemy of our freedom? You know, I mean, the Bible's so stuffy. Like, I'm not going to celebrate God's law. It's so stuffy. It just keeps me from all the fun. Why do we, why do, we do that? It doesn't inhibit our freedom. It inhibits our destruction is what it does. How do you stay pure? How do you stay blameless and blessed, happy? How do you do that? By guarding it according to God's word, God's spoken. Obey it. If you want a practical advice, look at verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart. This is how you do it. This is how you guard it. You put it in your heart. You cram as much Bible as you can in your heart. When you give the word of God a strong foothold in your life, you're going to find yourself sinning less and less and less. And notice the reverse. When you find yourself sinning more and more and more, I can guarantee you've, you've stuffed God's word. You've ignored it and you've neglected it like Manasseh. And all these things start popping up in your life. When you give God's word a foothold, you're going to find that you're on path to purity. Now notice this verse asks us to store God's word in our heart. Typically, the application is memorization, and I think that's right. But don't just memorize scripture, embrace it. Embrace it. Put your heart around the scripture, not just your mind. Memorization is an act of the will that we need to exert. Embracing it in our heart, that's an act of God's divine grace. So ask God that your heart would be open and that you could store up the word of God in your heart. And never forget this prayer with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Let's quickly move to the last part of the second stanza, verses 12 to 16, where the author is just going to de just delight in God's word. It's a good thing, the joy of God's word. These are going to be five gold rings that are just kind of scattered about. If you can find a connecting theme, tell me. We're just going to go through these in uh, succession. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. As you read through Psalm 119, you're going to notice that the author has a very good grasp of God's word. He knows it well. He celebrates it. He understands it deeply. And yet, here we are in verse 12, and really all throughout the, the rest of the passage, he's asking for guidance. Teach me. Open my eyes that I may behold 
wondrous things out of your, your law. Listen, we'll never master God's word. We'll never master it. You might like ace those Facebook Bible trivia quizzes. Good for you. You'll never master God's word. You'll never master it. In fact, the deeper you get into the Bible and the, and the more knowledge you get, the more wisdom that you get, you're going to find yourself asking for guidance more. You're going to find that on your lips. Teach me, God. Teach me. Teach me. The more you put in your head, the more it should be in your heart. Teach me. Let me understand. Now listen, if you are learning the Bible and your knowledge is, is gaining and you're not asking for guidance and you're not asking for God to teach you, it's, a, it's time to repent. Knowledge is good, but knowledge puffs up. So don't let knowledge corrupt your head. Ask God to teach us his statutes. The more you grow in love for God's word, the more you'll find yourself asking for guidance and for teaching. So have the courage to ask that. Verse 13, with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. When God's word is in your heart, you can't keep it in. God's mouth declares that our lips speak it. God speaks, we proclaim. That's awesome. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When it's in your heart, it just, it comes out. Now this includes the really good parts. In Colossians chapter three, God com- or Paul commands the church to let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly and teach and admonish one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs and encouragement with thanksgiving. That's a good thing. And I hope that we always edify each other in the word of God. So let the word of God encourage each other as you speak to each other. Encourage each other in the word of God. God speaks, we encourage. But this also encourages the really hard parts too. God speaks hard things sometimes. We gotta proclaim that too. Do you remember the time, the prophet Jeremiah's life, when he just shut up? He just, I'm done. God put some really hard words in his heart, and he says, speak these. Chapter 20, he was done. Every time he spoke God's word, he got beat up and put in stocks. People laughed at him. They mocked him, and he was done. In chapter 20, he says, God, you're, you're a liar. You deceived me. This is not what I signed up for to declare your word. I'm a fool I'm getting rejected, I'm getting beaten up by this, and I'm done. And listen to what God does to him. He tried to conceal the word of God in his heart, and it consumed him. Listen to verse 9 of chapter 20 in Jeremiah. If I say, I'm not going to mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart is a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot. I cannot. Listen, as our culture becomes increasingly more and more hostile, you'll have plenty of really good reasons to keep your mouth shut. And you're going to just want to say the good things, teach and admonish and songs and spirituals. And you're going to want to forget the, the difficult things. If God's word is in your heart, God speaks with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. We proclaim even the hard stuff and the good stuff. God's word includes difficult things and it includes incredible things. It includes hope. So let's say both. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. If you thought that last verse was convicting, here we go. In your testimony I delight as much as I do in all riches, all riches. Really, can we say that? Like, let me ask you a simple question. Which would you rather achieve in 2015? As you're setting goals for the next year, would you rather receive a check for a billion dollars would you rather read through the Bible? 
And you can't say both. I know you're thinking both, both, both. <laughs> I'll do both, right? <laughs> I want both. Listen, if we could place the same desire we have towards money and towards Black Friday deals on the word of God, our lives would be different. I'm not trying to put a, a guilt trip on you. This is just what the psalmist says. I wrestle with this in my heart. Oh, that my ways would be, oh, that I would line up with your commands, God. Listen, money offers immediate change, but it's a cruel master. It can come overnight and it can leave you overnight. And that's why I think a lot of us cling to it. It's just, it's easy, but it's, it's cruel. The word of God is sometimes more difficult to receive, but it will never leave you. Remember the first word of the psalm, blessed, blessed, happy. Happier those who delight in God's word. Listen to how one author puts it. I think it's just beautiful the way he says it. Truth and holiness afford to the sincere believer a pleasure more exquisite as well as more solid and enduring than that which a miser feels at the acquisition of his darling wealth. When you line it up, there's no comparison. Is your heart set on riches or is your heart set on the word of God? Put it on the word of God. It won't depart. It won't leave you. Let's move to 15. I, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Once again, the psalmist realizes that you can't just let it come in and go out. You've got to internalize it. You've got to digest it. Just like food, you don't just like chew it up and spit it out. You've got to digest it. It's got to get in you. It's got to change you. And I'm going to meditate on it. Do you let God's word, do you, do you meditate on it? Do you chew on it? You are what you think. So if you just have like a brief devotional where you read it, and you rush in and you rush out, you're not getting the full, fullness out of God's word. Fix your eyes on his ways and meditate on it. It takes time. It takes effort but I can't think of a more life-giving practice than to simply chew and meditate on God's word. He ends on verse 16 with a resolution. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And I pray that we too will delight. That's the goal of this whole message. I just want us to delight in God's statutes. I will delight. I will not forget. There's 160 more verses that speak of the same thing for your own enjoyment later on. So the rest of the day, the rest of the week, I hope you can get into it and just delight in God's word. I want to end with a, a brief reflection. As I studied this text this week, I came across two kind of disturbing trends. The first one was expected. This always happens whenever you speak this highly of the Bible. When you speak of the Bible in these like exalted and glowing terms, people always pop up the accusation, wait a minute, that's idolatry, that's worship. Like it makes some people uncomfortable. Maybe in your, in, in your heart secretly somewhere you're like, I don't know if I feel comfortable speaking of the Bible, of God's word that highly. I don't want to worship the, the word of God. I want to worship the God of the word. There's a word for this type of behavior. It's bibliolatry, Bible worship. You can check it out. It's people that idolize the Bible. And that brings up an interesting question. Can we idolize the Bible? Are these accusations legitimate? There's always the temptation. Yeah, I think it is possible to idolize the Bible. And in fact, this is what the Pharisees were accused of in John chapter 5. They were going to the Bibles for eternal life and they were bypassing God. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. The Bible points to me, the hero. That's where you find life. But let's not be so quick to separate the two. Let's not just say, all right, you can have the word of God. I'll have the God of the word. That's a distinction that's made nowhere in the scripture. It's not what we're commanded to do. It's just you put the word of God, let's just go straight to God. How can we know God if he didn't speak? How, how can we know God if he didn't write it down for us? 
This is where we come to find God. You know, when Jesus rose from the grave, he could have done away with the Bible and just said, listen, life is in me. Everybody just come directly to me. The Bible's been good, but let's just put it away. No, what he did, he's, he picked up a copy of the Bible on the road to Emmaus, and he says, this is where I am, this is where I am, this is where It all points to me. So the cure is not to get rid of the Bible and get more God. The cure is to read the Bible correctly and read the Bible and find Christ in the Bible, and that will give you life. So don't be concerned about that accusation, right? I want less of the Bible. The, we find God in the Bible. The best way to delight in God himself is to delight, in, to delight in his word. I pray that you would do that this week. But the second trim was a little bit more disturbing and, and definitely not as expected. So I began to study for this message. Whenever I do this, I love kind of building my library and I love commentary day when I get to pick out a commentary or two and just go through them. So I do a lot of research, try to pick out the newest stuff, the best stuff. It's a big day for me. I love it. Um, so I got in some really good books, really trusted commentaries. And um, they came in. I was excited about digging into them. And I opened them up expecting, you know, you're going to have this book like this big on the Psalms. You're like, all right, this should give me like that much of Psalm 119 proportionately, right? And they offered very little guidance and very little help. The, the new commentaries, the ones recently written, they're going to give you tons of pages on the actual structure of the text and on the formation of it. But once you get into the words, they're like, let me just pop this. Verse 22 is a good one. They'll just tell you a couple of highlights about the, the Psalms. And they really didn't give me much guidance. I was kind of disappointed. I had to go to the 18th century guys and the 19th century guys to get the good stuff to get pages and pages and pages of exposition on one word and on one verse. And I, what are we to make of this? Maybe nothing. Maybe I'm just reading into stuff I shouldn't be reading into. But maybe we're forgetting how to delight in God's word. And we're forgetting to play with it and sing it and just rejoice in the scriptures. You know, this has been a very important century in the doctrine of the scriptures. The 20th century into where we are now, the scriptures have come under so many attacks and accusations like they never have in the history of the church. This, the, the scriptures have always been assumed. It's God's word. It's true. People have questioned that. And so we've come to our defense, the evangelical community, fundamentalism, we've come to its defense. And I think we've come up with really good defenses in defense of the, tr the truth of the scriptures. The authority has been questioned. There's defenses for that. The inerrancy, inspiration of the Bible, and whether you even knew it or not, the perspicuity of the Bible. These have all been attacked and they've all been valiantly defended. But I just wonder if in our defense, we haven't just kind of closed it off and just put it in a museum and said, we're gonna spend all of our time defending this book and we just, we don't open it and play with it and rejoice in it and celebrate it. Like the author of Psalm 119. Really, go back a couple of centuries. This was an important text in the church. It was preached on often. It was written about often. And it was just, a, it just guided the church. We need to spend time defending the truth of the Bible, but not at the cost of delighting in it. I pray that we would have the courage and grace to delight in God's word. Let's pray. Would you stand with me as we pray? And as we close this morning, I just want to pray. I want to just... Go through the rest of the psalm and pray with the psalmist this morning. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, our soul melts away for sorrow. Please strengthen us according to your word. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts, God. 
We find delight in your commandments, and we love your commandments. Lord, this is the comfort in our affliction. Your promises give us life. God, we entreat your favor with all of our heart. Be gracious to us according to your promise. Lord, it was good that we were afflicted. It was good that we were afflicted, that we might learn your statutes. May our hearts be blameless in your statutes, that we may not be put to shame. Lord, our soul longs for your salvation. We hope for your word. Lord, if your law had not been our delight, we would have perished in our affliction. How sweet are your words to our taste, God, sweeter than honey to our mouths. Your word is a lamp to our feet. Your word is a light to our path. God, we have strayed like sheep. Seek us, for we don't forget your commandments. Amen.